And Father, we've just sung some remarkable promises. How could we ever say it is well with my soul except that our Savior bleed and die on our behalf? How can we ever say that we are secure in Christ except for this reality that He will hold us fast? There's no slippage in the hand of God. There's no accidental drops. And God will keep those who are His. Father, would you, would you make us secure in that this afternoon, this, this morning? Would you, would you make us to understand the centrality of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the necessity of the gospel, the permanence of the gospel? And Father, would you change us by what we are about to hear? We say it often, but it, it stays true. Would you change us because we need change? And Father, might this not just be an ordinary Sunday, but might this be a Sunday in which profound, ongoing, permanent change takes place in our hearts? Would you do that? What better form of worship could we offer you than to be transformed by you? And so we commend our time to you. Give us wisdom and instruction from this word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I suppose that the most asked question in the universe is the question, why? All you have to do is take all the two to four-year-olds in the world and the 97 times a day that they ask the question, why? And I don't think that there's any question that gets asked more than that question. But maybe the second most asked question is the question, what happened? As in, honey, I just received the credit card bill for this month. What happened? Did you see the game last night? What happened? I just pulled the souffle out of the oven and it fell. Again. What happened? I just had one of your cookies and they are perfect. Again. How do you do that? What happened? I just heard about your visit to the doctor. You seem in such good health. What happened? The poll results are in from the election. What happened? I just heard they got engaged. I didn't even know they were dating. What happened? The storm came so suddenly and the devastation is so terrible. What happened? And then there's this one. Son, you came in two hours late last night. What happened? And do you know what's about to happen also? All those questions and hundreds, perhaps thousands more like them tell us that there are perplexing things all around us. There are circumstances in our life that we just don't understand that that, that perplexes us. And it is that kind of perplexity that motivates Paul to write what he does in Romans 11, 7 to 10. He has just reminded the Romans and us that God has not rejected Israel as his covenant people, that God is, is going to preserve Israel and they do belong to him. And yet, 
And yet, while God has not rejected Israel, Israel has rejected God. And so the natural question is, what happened? How did that come about? Why did Israel reject God? And, and what happened to Israel when she rejected God? And, and what do we learn about God in light of Israel's rejection of Him? That's what Paul is asking in the question at the beginning of verse 7, what then? In light of, in light of the fact that God has not rejected Israel, what are we to make of the fact that Israel has consistently, persistently repudiated God, rejected God, rebelled against God, run away from God? What happened? Paul is continuing to to develop the theme that we saw last week in the opening verses of this chapter, and that is God is faithful to keep His covenant with His chosen nation, Israel. God God will keep His covenant. God has not rejected Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham. That that covenant with Abraham was, was amplified through Moses and David and Jeremiah, and God will keep those promises. There's no going back on those promises. And yet it looks like Israel has gone back and turned away. And yet what we will find in this passage is that God is faithful to that covenant. He will not turn His back on His people. Not just Israel, though, but God is faithful to keep His promises with all of His chosen people. If you are in Jesus Christ, God is faithful to you as well, to preserve you as well. And the question this morning is, how do you explain Israel's failure to believe God if God has not rejected her? How do you, what do you make of Israel's rejection? How do you explain Israel's rejection? And the apostle in verses 7 to 10 gives us three explanations of what happened to Israel and the promise of God to redeem Israel. Three, three explanations of, of how it is that Israel has rejected God and what God is doing and what God is like. What has happened? Verse 7, well, let me tell you what's happened. Israel's rebellion is what has happened. Notice verse 7, what then, Paul asks, what happened, Paul asks, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. So Israel was seeking something. And that, that little word, seeking, denotes that, 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 that they have an interest in something, they have a desire in something, and that desire is strong and it is overwhelming. And because of that desire, they, they put out maximal effort to achieve their desire. They are serious in their desires. They are, they are longing in their desires. They are persistent in their desires. They have not given up on their desires. And the question is, what, what were they seeking? Now, Paul doesn't tell us in this verse what they are seeking, but, but he has already told us throughout this letter what they were seeking, and especially in this section on God's sovereignty in chapters 9 to 11, he's already told us several times what it was that they were seeking. Just turn back a page or so to chapter 10 and start looking at verses 2 to 4. What they were seeking was righteousness. But they wanted a particular kind of righteousness. They wanted their own righteousness. So notice what he says in verse 2. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. So that word zeal, it's not the same word as seeking in 11.7, but it has a similar kind of connotation, that they are, they are pursuing with diligence and perseverance and longing and, and depth um, something for God. They, they long for God. They, they want to know Him. And they want to be known by Him. But, but notice verse 3. They, they, they wanted God not on God's terms, but they wanted God on their terms. They, they wanted to establish their own righteousness. Uh, 
So they're pursuing him at the end of verse 2, not in accordance with knowledge, because not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. In other words, we want God, but we want God our way. We want to get to God, we want to be in glory, we want we want freedom from sin, but we want it our way. We want to accomplish it through our own means and our own righteousness and our own self-justification. In fact, not only did they want their own kind of righteousness, notice that Paul says they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Not only did they pursue their own righteousness, they rejected out of hand God's righteousness. We will not pursue you the way you want us to pursue you. They were unwilling to embrace even Jesus Christ as their righteousness, even though Christ was the provision of what they needed. That's verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, so if you want to pursue a law of righteousness, if you want to be righteous, Christ is the goal. Pursue Christ and you will be righteous. Christ will make you righteous. Christ will rather declare you righteous and then in glory He will make you righteous. Righteousness comes through Christ and through Christ alone. And that is the very thing that that Israel was seeking. They were seeking righteousness, but not God's righteousness and certainly not through Jesus Christ. What what did that what did that pursuit of righteousness on their own look like? Well well just look at the at the life of Jesus Christ and you have multiple examples all the way through the testimony of, of Christ's life, all the way through the gospel accounts of, of the different ways that Israel was pursuing a righteousness on their own. Consider one just one example, and even as I'm reading in the Gospels right now. Uh, in my daily Bible reading. And, and just this week, I think every day I was reading, I was reading of some other form of pharisaical, hypocritical self-righteousness that Jesus denounces. Consider just one example, and, and there are many examples in the Gospels. Luke 11, verse 37. Now when he, Jesus, had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. That's kind of odd. Pharisee is the one who wants to kill Jesus, who wants to reject Jesus, is doing everything he can to undermine the authority of Jesus, and he invites him to his house. And then, even more remarkably, he went in, Jesus went in, and reclined at the table. Verse 38, when the Pharisee saw, when the Pharisee saw it, that Jesus was reclining at the table, he was surprised. But he wasn't surprised that Jesus had come. He was instead surprised, notice what he says in verse 38, that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. His surprise was, Jesus, you didn't wash your hands. Now, this was not the washing of hands that you would do with your seven-year-old when he comes in from playing outside all day and he is covered head to toe in dirt and he's been playing with a dog and he's been digging in the dirt and, and he is covered with sweat and perspiration and just general filthiness. And you say, son, before you come to the table, you, you need to go wash your hands. That's not what this is. This is a ceremonial purification by which the the Pharisees said, if we wash in this way, we're righteous on our own. We make ourselves clean. And And the Pharisee is shocked that Jesus doesn't wash himself in that way. Verse 39, the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. Jesus confronts him and says, You've missed the whole intent of the law. You think you can be righteous inwardly simply by washing your hands. It can't happen. You can't be righteous on your own. You foolish ones, verse 40. Did he not 
Did, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within us charity, and then all things are clean for you. And, and this, was, this was the trend of the Pharisees all through the Gospels. Let's wash our hands. Let's keep the Sabbath. Let's tithe the mint and the cumin and all the other herbs and spices, and then we are righteous on our own. And Jesus says, you can't be righteous on that way. In fact, starting in verse 42, he will give six woes against the Pharisees, six declarations that they have pursued the wrong thing in the wrong way, and and they are headed to hell, not to heaven. And this is is the kind of rebellion. This is is the kind of, of righteousness that Israel was pursuing persistently, and they could not... Notice what Paul says, coming back to Romans 11:7, and they could not obtain what they were seeking. They didn't get it. They, they couldn't get it because what they were seeking was disobedience against God, rebellion against God, rejection of God. And because they were rejecting God, they, they could not obtain. There was no success for Israel in her pursuit of righteousness. She didn't get it. And this is what Paul has been saying, not just in this passage, but he's been saying this all the way through the book. It starts in chapter 2, and then we see it repeatedly in chapters 9 and 10. We've already looked at one section in in chapter 10. Consider chapter 9, verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Why would, why would Paul say, I could even wish that I was damned to hell? Because he so longed for the nation of Israel to know the truth, and they didn't. They didn't get it. In fact, he'll say at the end of this chapter, verse 31, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. They wanted righteousness. They wanted, they wanted a, a legal standing before God that would declare them to be righteous, and they did not get there. They could not obtain. Friends, this is a reminder that there is, there is no one that is righteous on, our, on his own. There is no one who can please God. There is no one that is righteous. No, not one. Not even Israel, the most blessed people in the history of the world, the, the most graced people, the, the most, the, those who have received the most revelation from God, that have the most instruction from God, the ones who have been blessed by His choosing of them as a nation, even Israel is not righteous on their own. There is not enough. Friend, if you, if you are attempting to be good, if you think you are good enough, if you think you are sufficient, if you think you are adequate, understand that the best positioned people in the world are not adequate on their own. And if Israel could not obtain righteousness on their own, friend, then you cannot obtain righteousness on your own either. So what happened to Israel? She had the right motive, but she pursued it in the wrong way. She pursued it as self-righteousness, and she never made it. God was willing to be found by her, but only if they pursued His provision of righteousness, only if they pursued Him the way He said to pursue Him. Only if they appeal to Him and His righteousness. That does not mean that God is so self-absorbed with Himself that He cannot, he cannot fathom anyone coming to Him except by His way. He's not a four-year-old throwing a temper tantrum saying, it's my way or you can't play with me. 
He is, he is telling them, you can't come to me this way because you're inadequate. Not only are you inadequate, you are wholly inadequate. Not only are you not righteous, there is absolutely nothing righteous within you at all. There is nothing righteous about your righteousness. Your righteousness, in fact, the, 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 the prophet Isaiah will say in Isaiah 64, your righteousness is as filthy rags. You're not only not righteous, you are desperately sinful. You can't come to me that way. You can never accomplish it on your own. But there is a way to come to me. And that is by a gift of grace. God provides a righteousness that is His gift of grace. So what happened? Well, what happened is Israel rebelled. But there's a second thing that happened, and that is God's grace. We see that in the middle of verse 7. What Israel was seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. Now, what I want you to notice in verse 7 is that he actually shifts who he's talking about. So at the beginning of verse 7, he says what Israel was seeking, and there he's talking about the nation as a nation. So this is the covenanted nation of Israel. This is, this is the nation as it received the promise to Abraham. This is, this is the nation that will one day as an entire nation be yet redeemed. That's, that's, that's what he's talking about at the beginning of verse 7, that Israel as a nation was seeking this righteousness. And then he shifts... And he says, those who were chosen, that is, he starts talking not about the nation, but about individuals. And so he talks about individuals within the nation of Israel who were chosen by God, and then another group of individuals, the rest, who were hardened. So he's talking about the nation of Israel, and then he's talking about saved individuals, and then he's talking about unsaved individuals, and he's actually going to talk about the individuals through the rest of this section uh, up to the end of verse 10, and then in verse 11, he's going to go back to talking through the end of the chapter about the nation as a nation. So, so right now, here, he's talking about individuals, those who have been elected. Now, now who are the ones who were chosen? Who are, who are these ones we're not just chosen, but we might translate that word, those who were chosen, we might translate that as elected. That is, that God has selected them. He has designed them for salvation. He has purposed them for salvation. He has chosen them to salvation. And that, that word chosen or that word elect is the same word that refers to the nation of Israel. So uh, verse 2, he has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He has, he has known the nation of Israel. He has chosen the nation to be his own people. Verse 5, we find this same word. There's a remnant in the nation that comes according to God's gracious choice, God's electing purposes. So it, it refers, that word election, sometimes refers to the nation of Israel and how God has chosen the nation to be his. It also refers to in individuals who belong to him. We see this in chapter 9, verse 11, uh, speaking about uh, the twins of uh, Rebekah. It says, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice, His choice, His choosing, His election would stand not because of works, but because of Him who calls. That same word there is not just referring to the nation, but now individuals within the nation. This is the electing purpose, the choosing purpose that God has personally experienced. 
This is what many others within the nation of Israel at that time experienced. This is what what many in Israel experienced in the Old Testament. This is what what many will experience in the future when the 144,000, for instance, in in Revelation uh, chapter 7 are redeemed. This is God's elective choosing purposes for salvation of individuals. What, What I want you to see with this word, though, is that God is not only chosen for salvation, but friends, this is Amazing, astounding, overwhelming, perplexing grace. Despite Israel's rejection of her, God is being kind and merciful and gracious to save some. Um, I, I'm told that there's a, a little bit of a, a shift that's going on in what is considered to be appropriate etiquette in sending out wedding invitations. So, so the whole wedding invitation thing is, has um, kind of morphed over the years. So there used to be this formal invitation that would go out, and then with the invitation you would also get a, you know, a little card and, a, and an envelope within your invitation that you could send back stamped and say, yes, we're coming, or no, we're, we're, we regret that we won't be able to make it. So, so that was the standard, and, and still is a standard in a lot of places, but now that's kind of morphed as well. So now, now there are also email notices that you've been invited to to uh, to a wedding, and there are also you know evites where you can go and you can sign up and say yes I'm coming or no I'm not coming, and and there are the save the date notices that might come by email, might might come uh, might come by a text or something like that. Well, there's a and all that stuff has pretty much become somewhat well accepted as being appropriate etiquette to how to handle an invitation. There's there's one new facet to invitations that might not be um, accepted quite as quickly, and it is it is the alert, um, you're not invited to the wedding. And apparently some couples um, have such restricted space and, and, and destination weddings are becoming a little more popular and, and you can't, you know, you can't take 200 people on a destination wedding, or at least most of us can't. And so we're trying, some of these couples are trying to restrict the number of people that will be going. And just to be clear, they're sending out notices, sometimes posting them on, on like social media, like Facebook and Instagram, and saying, you are not invited. I have a wedding, but you cannot come. So, so one couple put it this way. We've had to be pretty brutal in chopping down our guest list. I'm so sad you won't be there with us on the day. But we look forward to catching up afterwards. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll see if we come to that one. Now, you think about weddings and non-invitations. Now, now think about Israel. And Israel has rejected God, rebelled against God, and said, we will not have you. If anyone was a candidate for an uninvitation, it was Israel. And, Israel. and God says, let me show you some grace that even though you have rejected and you have not pursued my righteousness, you have not taken my righteousness that I have provided for you, even so, I am choosing some within those who have rejected for salvation. Well, friends, the saying is trite, but it really is true. It is amazing grace. It's astounding. It's perplexing. Why would God do this? Because He is a God of grace. What has happened? Well, what has happened is Israel's rebellion. What has happened? God's grace. There's a a third explanation of what happened, and that is God's hardening. We find this reality introduced and stated in 
the end of verse 7, God's hardening is stated for us at the end of verse 7, and it could not be much more blunt than it is, and the rest were hardened. And when he says the rest were hardened, he means us to understand that there was an outside force that was working on the Israelites. It's not that they hardened themselves, the Israelite individuals. It's not just that they hardened themselves. It is that this force that is outside them hardened them. And we are meant to understand this was God who hardened them. This is, this is God who solidified them in their rebellion against Him. God was actively involved in the hardening of the Israelites. God has confirmed them in their sins so that at some point they can no longer respond to His gracious offer of, of salvation. And again, Paul is not speaking here about the nation. He is speaking about individuals within the nation. Now the question is, on what basis does God harden these individuals? And, and we've already seen this principle in this book, in fact, in this section on sovereignty. So just turn back a page or two to chapter 9. Speaking about God's elective purposes, um, God says to Moses, verse 15 of chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So if someone is elected and chosen, if someone comes to salvation, it is not on the basis of anything that anyone does on his own. It is always on the basis only of what God has done, how God has extended mercy to him. And then he gives an illustration in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that is to to national prominence and the position of leadership in Egypt as Pharaoh, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And then Paul comments about what God means in that statement in verse 17. So then... He, God, has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. So God has mercy on some, and He hardens some. Well, how does that happen? It happens because of God's direct involvement. But it does not happen apart from the will of the individual who is hardened. So we won't take the time. We, when we were going through chapter 9, we took some time with this. So let me just kind of briefly summarize. If you read through the account of Pharaoh in Exodus 7 and following, you find repeated statements, about eight or ten statements, if I remember correctly, where it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then we're also told in those same chapters that God hardened Pharaoh so that, so that while Pharaoh was hardening his heart, it was also that God was acting on him and against him, if you will. We might say God is the author of Pharaoh's hard heart. So how, how can that be? There's an element of this that's a mystery. How is God sovereign and yet at the same time man is responsible for his sin before God? So how how can God harden someone in his sin and still hold him accountable for that sin? There's, there's a mystery there that our puny little finite, non-infinite brains cannot understand. But Paul's already actually given us a hint as to how this takes place. So go back to Romans chapter 1. 
Romans chapter 1, we find in verse 20 that God has revealed Himself through general revelation to all men so that everyone everywhere understands through creation. We'll find in chapter 2 not only creation but also in the conscience that every man understands the nature of God and who God is. They understand His existence. They understand His power, uh, 120, His nature. They are uh, understand that and they are without excuse. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Uh, They did not, that is, glorify Him. They did not give thanks to God. They became futile in their speculation. Their foolish heart was darkened. And professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We don't want God. In other words, we know who God is. We understand His claims. We understand His nature. We understand His character. And we don't want Him. We'd rather, we'd rather worship an aardvark. Thank you very much. Okay? God says, if that's what you want, verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They continued, verse 25, to exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who's blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to a degrading passion. In the same way, men also abandoned natural function, committing indecent acts, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then and then he enumerates in verses 29 to 32 all the things which are improper that they were engaged in. What we find in these verses is that men are rebellion, rebelling against God and God in His judgment is turning them over to their sin and saying, if that's what you want, then that's what you have. Not only if that's what you want, that's what you have, but if that's what you want, then that is what you must have. It is His judgment against them, confirming them in their rebellion and hardening them against a point of confession and repentance. What we, what we have to see here is that Pharaoh was not neutral to God. He was born like all men rebellious against God, opposed to God, and he never wanted God. God God was not God had not chosen Pharaoh for salvation and then said, Oh, just kidding, I'm going to harden you instead. No. Pharaoh was born opposed to God, rebellious against God. Everything he did was in rebellion against God, and God said, If that's what you want, then I'm hardening your heart to repenting. You can't have me. You won't come to me. As Douglas Moo has said well, God's hardening permanently binds people in the sin they have chosen for themselves. They'd rather have their sin than have God, and God hardens them. We need to understand that God is sovereign in His elective purposes of all men, but that does not mean that anyone is hardened against His will. When someone is hardened... They are hardened in perfect accord with their will. That is what they want. They are getting exactly what they want. Are there examples of that kind of hardening in Scripture? Indeed there are. That's verses 8 through 10. The reality of hardening is exemplified for us in verses 8 through 10. 
And so Paul says, verse 8, just as it is written, and here he is reminding us that everything he is saying is in accord with what has already been revealed by God in Scripture. This is not God, this is not Paul's idea, this is God's idea. This is, this is God's revelation. And, and what we find in verse 8 is a combination of two passages. It's, it's a passage in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, and a passage in Isaiah 29, verse 10. And just, to remember what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 29, uh, Israel had been rebellious against God or, uh, after he had um, after he had freed them from Egypt. So they took them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptians all drowned in the Red Sea. God led them to the nation of Israel, and He sent in spies into the nation. And they came back, and all the spies said, "It's a great and." Wonderful land, it's flowing with milk and honey. And ten of them said, we dare not go in, there are giants. And two said, there are giants, but God has promised, let's go. And the nation followed the ten. And God said, okay, if that's what you're going to do, if you're going to rebel against me, then you're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation of adults dies off. And so that's what they did. And then Romans 28, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and 30 um, they get to a place where there are two mountains, um, uh, uh, Gerizim and Ebal, and half the nation goes up on one mountain and half on the other mountain, and they they sing or they declare to each other the blessings and cursings of what will happen if they either obey or disobey the law that God has commanded. And that's in, in particularly in, in chapter 28. And then notice in verse 29, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 29, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them at Horeb. In other words, this is this is the covenantal promise of God. These things which you have just declared to one another from these mountaintops, this is God's declaration of his covenant promises. If you obey, he will bless you. If you disobey, he will curse you. Now notice verse 4, and this is what Paul quotes in Romans 11. And what a tragedy. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. God has not graced you to submit to Him in obedience. He stopped up your ears. There's been no, ha, I get it moment as you've been wandering through the wilderness. He has kept you in ignorance. Paul takes that passage and he adds to it a verse, a, a, just, just one phrase actually from Isaiah 29. In Isaiah 29, the nation of Israel is again rebellious. It's not just Israel that's rebellious, but the prophets and the priests are rebellious against God as well. They're engaging in drunkenness. We see that in 28.7. Uh, the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from wrong, strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. So they're just they're they're just consuming themselves with alcohol and then vomiting up all the consequences of that and 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 just the filth and the disgust. And this is the this is the religious leadership of Israel. And so God. God judges them. 29, 9. Be delayed and wait. 
Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. That's that, that phrase from 29.9. He has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has, he has poured over you this, this, um, this sense of being in a stupor. You're not just sleepy, you're apathetic. You're not just sleepy, but you have been numbed to the truth. And that has been God's consequence for you because of your rebellion against you. And notice what he says at the end of the verse. He says, it is down to this very day. It was true in Moses' day. It was true in Isaiah's day. It was true in Paul's day, friends. It is true in our day. And then in verses 9 and 10, he expands what he says and gives another example, this time from Psalm 69. And he says, and David says, now just as an aside, did you notice? He quotes from Moses, Deuteronomy. That's the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then he quotes from Isaiah. That's the prophets. That's the last 17 books of the Old Testament. That's, that's um, the minor prophets and the major prophets. And now he is quoting from Psalms. That's the third and final major division of the Old Testament, the writings. It's everything that's not law and everything that's not prophets. It's everything else, all the historical and all the poetic and it is, as if, it is as if Paul is saying, we see this truth. It's not my truth, but we see this truth in the Old Testament. We don't just see it in the Old Testament, but we see it in the law, the prophets, and the writings. We see it all through the Old Testament that this truth, that God has hardened those who are rebellious against Him. We find it in Psalm 69. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened and see not. Let their backs bend forever. In Psalm 69, David is being oppressed. He's being persecuted. He's been giving trouble and he is appealing to God for salvation. So verse 1 of Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life and the waters are are those, verse 4, who hate me without cause that are more than the hairs of my head. They would dest- Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrong, wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. So he is being persecuted by people. The suffering is people. The suffering is the difficulty that comes through people and, da- and, and David is appealing to God for salvation. We find it also in verse 14, this appeal for salvation. Deliver me from the fire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. Verse 29, I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. The only means of my salvation, God, is from you. Would you save me? But what's interesting is it's not just an appeal to God for his salvation, David also gives an imprecation against those who are opposed to him. That is, he he asks for them to be judged by God, as we find in verses 22 and 23. And that is what the Apostle Paul quotes in Romans chapter 11. May their table be before them become a snare. So the place where they come for sustenance, the place where they come for fellowship, the place that ought to be a safe place, it becomes a snare And when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. God, pour out your wrath on them. And Paul, taking that passage in verses 9 and 10, says that is the very thing that happened. The thing and the place 
where they should have received food and blessing, it became their judgment. The truth that they should have seen, they were blinded from understanding, and instead of enjoying freedom, they were bent over from the judgment that was coming against them. Understanding, Understand that the darkening of Israel was not accidental. It was God's judgment on, on rebellion. Says one writer, Israel thought they saw it all, and now they see nothing. Israel thought they could do it all, now they can do nothing. Israel thought they could hear it all, and now they can hear nothing. And the terror of that judgment, notice the very last thing he says in verse 10, and bend their backs forever. Their judgment is unrelenting. God does harden people in their sin, and the end of that hardening is tragic and eternally tragic. There is no end to it. Now that's the end of our passage. Isn't that cheery? I couldn't leave you there. So I want you to see one more thing. The reality made hopeful. I'm stealing just a tiny bit of thunder from next week. I say then, they, now speaking of the nation again, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? God hasn't rejected them completely, has He? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. God used their sin to bring about your salvation. And when I say your, I don't mean that just generally. I mean you. If you're trusting in Christ, the only reason is because God temporarily set aside Israel so that he could graft you into the promises that are made to Israel. And and that whole process of bringing Gentiles to salvation is to make them, Israel, jealous. Verse 12, Now if their transgression is riches for the world, and if their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more? will their fulfillment be. God hasn't set aside Israel permanently. He will still fulfill His promises. He has not rejected. He is faithful. He will keep. He will save His people who are His. Friend, if you're a Gentile and you're saved, and that's probably most of us, oh, give thanks. Give thanks. And pray for Israel's redemption. What happened? Let me give you three lessons. Three lessons learned. One, man is responsible for his sin. It's always tempting to minimize sin, but God never minimizes sin. And even though God hardens people in their sin, that hardening is simply turning them over to what they want. They, they rebel so persistently against Him that He gives them their desires. Friend, that is a reminder to us that it, that, that, it, that it is impossible to escape the consequences of sin. There are consequences. The wages of sin is... Don't gloss over that. The wages of sin is death. It's death in this world. Adam and Eve sinned and they introduced death and everything else, everything in this world is destined to die because of sin. But it's not just, 
It's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. Everything will be, everything that, and everyone that rejects Christ will be eternally dying. There is no escape from the consequences of sin. And man is responsible and will be held responsible for his sin. Secondly, man, excuse me, God does and will harden individual sinners which means that there is a time for repentance and there is a limitation to the time for repentance. We, we, should, we should read a passage like Luke 20, 23 with Jesus on the cross interacting with the two thieves who were being crucified with Him and we should read that so hopefully so that, so that we understand that you can, you can come almost to the very last breath of life and still repent. People can be on their deathbed, literally, and still repent. Oh, friends, that should give us such great hope. Don't stop praying for those who are aged, who have not yet repented of their sin. There's still opportunity. But we should also understand that the longer one sins, the more he is inclined to sin. And the more willful he, is, he sins, the less he in, will be inclined to, to confess his sin because he doesn't want Christ. The longer we stay in sin, the more rebellious we will be in sin. And the more rebellious we are in sin, the more we are moving towards God hardening us in our sin. Well, there's always time to repent. But there is also a time in which God says, if you want your sin... Okay, then that's what you have and that's where you will stay. I think sometimes we think, oh, it's just a little sin, it doesn't matter. And we, we kind of dabble in sin. You know, some of you, some of you guys dabble in the stock market and we dabble in sin in the same way. Friend, there's no dabbling with sin. There's no more dabbling with sin like, than, than being a little bit pregnant or kind of in a war. No, friend, you're either pregnant or you're not. Or you're in a war or you're not. There's no dabbling with sin. There's no playing with sin. If you are engaging in willful, intentional, rebellious sin, you are marching your way towards hardness. And that means that today is the day of repentance. You are closer today to repentance than you will be tomorrow if you persist in your sin. Oh, friend, do not, do not dally. Do not wait. Do not resist. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you, are, if you have not been saved by Christ, today, today, He makes the offer of salvation available to you. And when you are in Christ, He will never reject you. But friend, if you persist in your sin, you are, you are playing with the possibility that He may at some day said, okay, if that's what you want, don't wait. Make today the day that you turn to Christ in faith. Make today the day of your repentance. There's one last lesson, and that is that God is overwhelmingly gracious and persistently faithful. We, we see God's grace all the way through these verses. Verse 1, God has not rejected His people. That's grace. 
Verse 1, Paul has been saved. That's grace. Verse 2, God has not rejected His people. Instead, He has chosen His people. That's grace. Verse 4, He has protected and preserved a remnant of His people. That's grace. Verse 5, there has been and still is a remnant of His people. He has chosen those people by grace. That's also verse 5. He he persists in preserving them by grace. That's verse 6. Even when his nation rejects him, he still graciously and he graciously and kindly elects and chooses and preserves some individuals within that nation. That's grace in verse 7. Verse 11, the nation of Israel was not engaged in permanent sin. He will still be gracious to save them. That's grace. Grace from beginning to end undergirds all of this. Our God is a faithful God and He is a gracious God. Oh friend, don't despair. Your God is faithful and your God is graciously faithful. Our Father, we thank You for these words. There's, there's good warning here that we need to heed. And so would You make us to heed it and hear it, respond to it. It even strikes me as we finish this morning, Father, that not only are there perhaps people in this room that need to hear the message of the Gospel and respond today so that they do not move one micrometer closer to being hardened. But Father, this also means that we who have been chosen by You, elected by You, saved by You, and know the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to speak this gospel to those who are in danger of being hardened. Father, would You give us opportunities this week to do that? Would You give us boldness this week to do that? Might we not shrink back? Might we not be apathetic? Might we understand the time is passing and now is the day not only of salvation, but now is the day when we must speak of salvation. And then who knows what you will do in saving men. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.